Welcome to Paint Ed. PCA provides painting contractors with connections they need to grow their business. To find out more and to become a member, go to PCAPaintEd.org. Find more great content like this on PCA Overdrive. A subscription to the platform is included with membership. For all you non-members out there, sign up for our free trial. PCA Overdrive is available on the Apple Store and Google Play. In today's podcast, we feature an episode from Ask a Painter Live with Nick Slavic. In this episode, Nick talks about the importance of job costing and shows us some real data from his painting business. Good morning, everybody. I am Nick Slavic. I'm the proprietor of the Nick Slavic Painting and Restoration Company. I'm also the host of this show, Ask a Painter Live. It's a weekly live Facebook show and Instagram show where I use my over uh, two decades, almost three decades now of experience to uh, show you what the life of a paint business entrepreneur and master craftsman is like. We talk about all the ins and outs of all the painting industry, the jobs, uh, the life, the data, all that other good stuff. So uh, this morning, we got a couple things to hit on real quick. Um, We... uh, Quarter two just ended uh, for most people, and I have all the data from that. And a lot of people ask me, you know, they we have a very data-heavy approach to this. Um, it feels data-heavy, except that most businesses do all this stuff, and it's sort of a normal course of business. But the painting industry does not do this, uh, most likely. So what I'm going to do today is I am going to go through quarter two, all the data from my company and show you why we job cost, why we do sales tracker, why we track our marketing, things like that, because we use it to make good decisions. Um, we got a whole bunch of master's classes coming up the rest of this year. I'm going to Sherwin-Williams Pro Shows. I'll be holding master's classes. Uh, I believe the next master's class is actually in Denver uh, in August. And then shortly after, I'll be going boom, boom, boom. There's some Florida. There's some other stuff. Um, you know, there'll be Michigan, Tennessee, uh, possibly even in Oklahoma or a Texas. So a lot of stuff going on there. We got links there. If you want any information about that stuff, you can always contact me, but I would certainly follow that link and see what's going on with that stuff there. It's a blast uh, traveling around the country, sharing data and experience, and I learn an amazing amount from that stuff. All right, so let's talk about data. Why do we track all this data? Now, people sometimes think that we talk a lot about the data, but I want people to understand that I do because there is a deficit of data-based thinking in our industry. This does not preclude me from focusing heavily on the empathetic human side of this business, which honestly, probably 80% of my day-to-day focus is human-to-human contact, personality types, communication styles, effectiveness, leadership coaching, it's all that stuff. So when when people watch Ask a Painter Live, sometimes it would lead you to believe that I'm this cold, hard numbers data guy and I, I'm completely bereft of the human side. That would not be the truth. You can ask anybody in my business right now. We focus 80% on the human side and we use the data to help make those um, decisions like that. So Phil Klein, good morning, my friend. Um, so we focus a lot on it here because I it, it is what our industry needs. We need to have more data-based thinking uh, out there because um, most of the businesses that I um, kind of like interact with across the country are really feelings based. And this is not a judgment. This is not that it's a bad thing. I know there's some great businesses out there who don't have a lot of stuff written down. They just paint really well and they move on and things kind of work out a little bit. But 
that can be a roller coaster sometimes because that's a feelings-based thing and the client can be happy, employees can be happy, but it doesn't mean you're happy and it doesn't mean you're making money and it doesn't mean it's sustainable and all those other things. So the data really helps me doing that. So I will show you guys what my company does for data. Um, these are all G sheets uh, that we've created over the years. My company had completed 197 jobs in quarter two of this year. And this is a line by line accounting of every single job we did. Um, my, uh, I was stressing the ink on my printer so you can see the greens and the reds, but we have conditional formatting on all these things to show us what meets our internal standards of revenue per hour, gross profit, material percentage, labor percentage, budget um, on each one of these things. And we kind of rank the jobs by, you know, here's, here's the job that did the best, here's the job that did the worst over that time. So yeah, it's a line by line accounting. And uh, number one, why do we do this? We do this so that every single week this job costing gets done and it's presented to me and the rest of the leadership team so we can do a week by week accounting of every single job that has been completed to see which crew performed well, which jobs performed well, which combination of those things worked well. If we had an off week, was it a holiday week, was it weather? It's not one of those things where we don't know why something happened. We can always point to something that caused a difference in the data, either up or down. Hey, little buddy. How are you, Sig? Hey, come here, bud. Come on, sit. <laughs> you got Sig running around here. Um, yeah, so week by week accounting, we can make changes. We don't just review this quarterly. If you wait three months to get all the data and then make a decision, you're, you're, you're probably, you know, two months and three weeks too late. So we make we make weekly changes to how we do to try to be more effective based on this job costing that comes in. Um, another reason uh, we do this is my leadership team is bonused on the profitability of these jobs. So we review them every week. And then at the end of a quarter, what you see here is a is a, um, a spreadsheet that tracks all the individual performance of my leadership team. We have two project managers, we have two estimators, we have a coordinator, and um, anybody who's got a bonusable comp plan here, we actually go through and I sort uh, and put filters on these things to, to bring out their jobs only. And then we sort by their jobs, by the ones that hit our internal benchmark for being bonusable and the ones that did not. And then we basically have a bonus percentage and uh, we give them a bonus based on that every quarter. And it's reviewed weekly, so there's no surprises. We make corrections, we get clarifying questions. And then at the end of the quarter, um, I produce, uh, <laughs> this, is a lot of, this is a lot of data crunching. It takes me about 40 to 60 hours to get ready for every single employee review, uh, apprentices, craftspeople, leadership team, and everything, because I, we rate every single person's performance on their job. So uh, the leadership team will have um, their own spreadsheet like this to review. They can go line by line and verify that I did my job correctly. Uh, they create all the job costing. I comply. Uh, I compile it into a bonusable worksheet format, uh, and then we we bonus them on that. And it is simple. It's transparent and it's predictable as well too. So you may say that this doesn't look so simple, but honestly, all this is is a tracking of how many hours and how many gallons of paint on every job. And was it one of these or was it one of these? And we discuss as a team. So there's just a lot of it sometimes when, when we track for a business my size. So, but this is something where um, any, any compensation plan, any bonus system should be just that. It should be simple, it should be transparent and it should be predictable. 
Um, there should never be a time where somebody feels they're doing bad and ends up getting a great bonus or feels that they're doing really good and then gets a small bonus. The feelings and the data should all be the same in there. So, yeah. And I also do this for all my painters too. So we have painters that are involved in, I think the fewest amount of projects was maybe 11 and a quarter and the most was maybe 30. And obviously that's based on job size. You know, our Craftsman of the Year, the PCA Craftsman of the Year, Fresh Alex, Alex St. Germain was involved on, I don't know, 11 or 14 of them, but we give him those monster historic restorations and those big, big projects with lots of people. So it's a it's a wonderful thing for him. We have some other people who are kind of like, they, they found themselves doing a lot of quick hit interior jobs. And there was uh, Tate, uh, craftsperson Tate, who who had, you know, I don't know, 30 jobs or something. So you can just tell by the job size, but I compile all the job costing for them and I basically compile a percentage and, and the painter's advancement in my company is based on, they need to hit 75% of their projects, hit that um, internal and budget mark uh, in the company to do that. And we, we coach the living daylights out of that as well too. So now there's the gross data like there, it's all compiled there. I simplify it down. This is a, uh, the, the true job costing for a quarter in my company is thousands of lines long uh, spreadsheet. And then I simplify it for bonus work, things like that. It gets compiled into this, like I showed you before. These are all the individual uh, people on the leadership team with bonusable um, uh, um, compensation plans and then a very predictable sort of like way that they get a bonus. Um, let's talk about, I'll share some data with you here because there's been, it's been a really fun quarter and there's uh because we, we have all this stuff. I mean, it took a, it took a couple years to really dial these systems in because we wanted, um, we wanted to know like which data, oh, you got a wasp flying around here. We, I don't want to do a bunch of extra stuff. When I get data, I really, really, really want to make decisions based on them. And John Busick, <laughs> the bird singing is lovely. Why are you still wearing overalls? You're a spreadsheet guy. So John, I have been a painter and master craftsman long, way longer than I've been a paint business entrepreneur. So I, I feel most comfortable in this stuff. I also, uh, when I eat, I like to wipe my hands on my clothes. It's just one of those, I like wearing clothes that can get dirty. That's a, that's a big thing for me. This is also very comfortable. So I like this stuff a lot. Um, also when people watch ask a painter, I want a visual reference that I'm actually a painter and that we do stuff like that. Uh, instead of me just wearing my, you know, pajamas out here on the, on the patio, but thank you. No, this is, I'm really enjoying, um, the patio sessions out here for ask a painter live. Like what I want to do is get in the shop, uh, like we did with a Minwax show recently and do some spraying and do some finishing, but I'm listening to pheasants crow over there. You can hear the, uh, crickets, you can hear the, uh, frogs and everything. And it's just like, this is wonderful out here. I'm enjoying these Saturday mornings and uh, yeah, it is super fun. I'm just, there's the big wall of glass right behind me. The kids are all kind of waking up, moseying around, the dog's there, uh, Toots is there making breakfast for the kids. And this is a life, man. I, I like this a lot. So Chris Mole, thanks for the stars. I don't know what the heck we're gonna do with these, man. Maybe I'll just let you decide what we do with them, Chris. You're always a genius with that sort of stuff. But uh, yeah, now the, the most pure, clean data that we get from the company is from the sales team. We have estimator Andy, which everybody knows and loves, and we have estimator Ian. Um, uh, and those two guys are doing amazing work out there. Uh, Andy's been with us for almost two years now, and a uh, special, special human being. Ian's been with us for five, six months, give or take. Very special human as well. Uh, I enjoy those guys greatly. And um, uh, the reason their portion of the data is so pure and so clean is because everything they do can be tracked just by the nature of the job. And 
they're doing it individually. There's no crews, there's no groups, there's no things like that. So it's just like pure, clean data. And it's, it's almost too easy to compile stuff like that. So uh, here is their sales tracker, which we update weekly. Uh, uh, and then we have a special sales team meeting where we, we look at everybody's numbers every week uh, and discuss ways to improve. These are the first two quarters of the year. Highlights of this, um, in uh, quarter two, uh, we produced, in quarter two, we produced about $842,000 uh, worth of painting businesses. We did about 197 jobs. Um, the sales numbers uh, from Andy and Ian were insanely impressive. I mean, they are, the way that they build trust with clients is like humbling. It's it's a truly fun thing to, uh, to watch. Um, their average week, Andy's average week uh, was just over $58,000 of sold jobs. Uh, Ian's uh, average week is just over $40,000. Now, Ian started really um, estimating. Uh, he started with us sort of a, a early on in quarter one of this year. He really didn't hit the ground running after training till maybe February, uh, really February, March, give or take. So really, he's only been out there a little ways, but his numbers have just been steadily climbing. Uh, his rapport with the clients is wonderful. And uh, internally, we have a goal. The industry benchmark for a lot of this stuff is, uh, I hear a lot of people say that they want an estimator to sell $1 million worth of profitable painting work a year. And uh, uh, that's what I initially set the mark at. And uh, for Andy, when he came on, he was the first person to ever do estimates in his company besides me. And it's, you know, 13 year history at that time. And um, I, he sold $2 million in his first year. And the, the rapport he had with the clients and his performance and just the, his professionalism was just amazing. So we sent... Uh, Chris, thanks a lot, man. I appreciate that. Dude. You're a kind guy. Um, yeah, so uh, it's amazing. So now, instead of the $1 million mark, we send we set a $2 million benchmark for our estimators. And if I'm going to be honest here, Andy is on pace <laughs> to sell almost $3 million worth of painting work this year. <laughs> I mean, he is out there. He is so good at this stuff. Uh, Ian is nipping right on his heels there. Um, Ian, uh, and, and we, we love pitching Andy and Ian against each other in our sales meetings. That's kind of the ethos of that estimators and the sales force. They're competitive guys. And, uh, boy, Andy takes it personally, uh, uh, with, with a lot of this stuff it, in the best way possible in the way I do too, where it really affects him and fires him up and gets him going out there. So, um, we have a internal benchmark of about $2 million, which would mean we want our estimators to sell about on average 40,000 a week. And very, very quickly, Ian is there. Um, and, uh, it, it, when we look at it, Andy was very humble. And even last week said that, you know, Ian, you're actually doing better than I was that many weeks into this. So, uh, but I think that was because Andy and I were trying to just get our feet under each other. So, yeah. Um, the next thing we track for our estimators is average job size, AJS. Um, my average job size, uh, I, I basically stopped fully estimating in quarter one. I, I dabbled in quarter one. I kind of put a full stop. I really wanted to hand all the estimates to the guys in quarter two. Uh, my, my average job size was 7,762, but I, I still have some of these relational clients that I take care of, and they're typically big jobs, $25,000, $40,000 jobs like that. So that's not, that's a skewed number. I only did a few sales this quarter for legacy clients. Uh, Andy's average job size is $6,600, just over $6,600. And Ian's is uh, $2 shy, excuse me, $1.19 shy. Uh, 
short of $6,000. So our internal benchmark, uh, last year was 5,000, and uh, this year we have an internal benchmark of, um, of $6,000 average job size. Morning, Jesse, fellow Minnesota painter. I enjoy Jesse very much. Um, so sold, Ian sold $524,000. Ian sold, uh, excuse me, Andy sold 756. Um, doing amazing work out there. It's, it's a wonderful thing to see. Now, our SR, success ratio, we do this many estimates, we get this many accepted. As a company, uh, last quarter, we had 52.3% uh, SR, which is our benchmark is 50, so we, we exceeded that. Um, the guys sold together $1.3 million worth of painting work. The average job size was actually higher uh, when you factor in uh, you know, all the jobs we did. It was about $6,700, just over $6,700. Uh, when we factor in the average job size. So, and obviously there are some ways that that gets skewed. We got a wasp in there. Gotcha. All right. So, uh, keep the kids safe out here from those wasps. Um, a couple, you gotta, you gotta parse out, you know, a lot of times when you take a data set, you get, you, you take out the, the top two or three outliers and the bottom two or three outliers because they can skew your data set. And we do have some pretty, Andy sells some pretty, pretty big work for some, for some bigger clients too. So that's how that gets skewed a little bit. But I set forth a goal for them and they did 125% of the goal uh, this last quarter. So it's a wonderful thing uh, to watch these guys work. They love this stuff. They're amazing team members here, and uh, I am very fortunate that we can attract people like that. That's a wonderful thing. So, all right, let me see what we got here. Ah, Mike Wells, good morning. Jesse Allen, two million a year, but I thought we were in a recession. <laughs> well, so, okay, again, talking about like uh, two shows ago when I did another patio session where we talked about patio session, where we talked about recession. Um, yeah, it's one of those things where things are gonna change, right? Like I'm paying a hell of a lot more for fuel than I was a couple months ago, but there's not really a lot you can change. I, I bought a thousand gallon fuel barrel. We got a discount on that. It's one delivery, it's easy, whatever. That's the most you can change that unless we start drilling oil ourselves. Inflation, listen, there's gonna be a lot of things where people like to use excuses. Um, there was people before COVID were always complaining about there's not enough good people out there. And then when COVID hit, they're like, great, now that's the reason why there's no good people out there. But over the last couple of years, there has been um, a, oh, my little daughter just woke up. There's been a <clears throat> an, an, an idea floating around, uh, proven out by some data that 66% of all people in the last couple of years have been looking for another job. So if we're gonna be honest, it might've been the easiest time in the last bunch of years to find people because people are curious. They're getting wanderlust and things like that and they think about work differently. So yeah, it's one of those things where Jesse, I know that you know you put the smiley faces on there because we think about this in the same way, which is if there is a recession, most people, most painters cannot tell you what that actually is or how that affects us. Um, inflation, we can always say, well, yeah, the cost of a loaf of bread or gasoline is higher but we don't really understand how that works, how it goes up, how it goes down. So making widespread decisions about your life and business, if you don't fully understand those economic principles, doesn't feel like a great thing for me. I will claim ignorance in a lot of those things. I'm very interested in them. Economics was one of my most, um, was one of my most favorite subjects in college. Um, if you wanna talk that stuff, talk to Jason Paris. He's actually a trained, educated economist, and uh, he can tell you a lot more about that. And even he will, will kind of tell you, like, listen, some of that stuff's going to be what it's going to be. There's opportunities and ups, opportunities and downs, and we just have to be smart enough to get them. So, yeah, we, we agreed there, Jesse. Craig Farrell, good to see you. Matt, 
Oh, Matt, how's it going? You rock, Nick. Any advice on how to job cost if everyone in the company has ADD and all of the info falls to the wayside every time we try to collect data? Yes, I will tell you this. Here's the deal. If your compensation plan, the compensation plan of your leadership team and the compensation plan of your painters is based on the profitability of jobs, you must job cost. Otherwise, they will be rip-roaring mad at you that you don't have accurate pay. So the three-legged stool of my company, I like, um, I set I set the, the craft division, the painters, the sales and the production. I set it up kind of like the three branches of government where there's checks and balances and each person's compensation plan is based on another. So the salespeople, Ian and Andy, get out there and they sell a job and basically they're not going to get a bonus unless it's produced by our project managers right and it's produced by our painters right so they have a vested interest in getting out there and making sure that all the painters are taken care of and the production team is taken care of you can have some discord in your compensation plans if your painters are are advanced based on the profitability of jobs but your sales team is paid just on flat fee for or a flat compensation for a job. So if your estimator made 5% of everything they sold, they may be less interested in what that actual price is. If they're just selling it and hammering and getting bonuses like that, well, who cares? Produce it or not, I'm getting bonused on this. Now, Ian and Andy would never do that. They're great people. But you can see where there's a disaligned incentive where one person is paid or advanced or bonused based on the profitability and one person is not. So that's how you do that. Now, um, a lot of people say this, ADD, a lot going on and, and all that stuff. Real business is job cost. It just is, right? It's like paying payroll is not an option, right? Paying your Sherwin-Williams bill is not an option. You do that. Job costing is not an option. It's one of those things where, yes, you can survive in business and so did I without job costing, but you'll never really know what you're doing well, what you're doing bad. You'll have feelings-based decisions, and you're going to go on this crazy roller coaster, and you can understand why the average lifespan of a painting business is one to three years, and most paint business owners make $43,000 a year, which is $21.50. So it's because it's all this feelings-based stuff, and then you get hit with a tax bill. One client doesn't decide to pay you, and it's all over for you. But job costing, the tracking of material and labor in my company, we get this done because the painters, they must get a green light on these updates. We ask them to fill out their hours and paint usage for every single job every day so we can track that. If they do not do this, they get a red light and they're not eligible for a raise. And we coach the living daylights out of this stuff, but it's data that we need for that. Weekly, I, because waiting for a whole quarter to do this can be very time consuming, things can get lost in the mix, you have to set up accountability weekly. And and this is something that I knew about myself, which is I struggle with accountability. It's my form of accountability. Uh, it used to be just work super hard. Don't worry about it. We're all going to overperform every way. But that doesn't always happen. So what I do is every Monday morning, we have a uh, leadership team meeting where the team must present the job costing. And this is one of those things where it has to be done. If it doesn't get done, there's formal counseling and things like that. It's never not been done. It's fine. we got an amazing team. But you have to set these things up in front of you where you cannot, you cannot get around them. The leadership team meeting on a Monday morning is from 10 to 12 with the entire leadership team, the salespeople, uh, project managers, coordinator, and myself. And we have the same time, same format, and we do the same things every Monday morning. That is a sacred meeting. You will not be on a job site. You will not be on an estimate. That is a time where it's it's marked on the calendar, and unless you're sick or dying, you will be there, and we will follow this format there. 
and then and then you can force it to get done. So I really want to stress to the entire industry that these things aren't like, this seems like a lot of data. This is the bare minimum entrance fee in becoming a real business. Every single successful real business out there does this right here. This is the standard. It's not something nice to have. It's not something extra. And all spreadsheets always seem more complicated than they are. The way I used to job cost, I had a paper, uh, like a carbon duplicate for my estimates. And when I was done with my job, I took my aluminum contractor's book, I flipped over my estimate, and I wrote down how many days I was on the job, what I did each day, how many hours was there, and how many paint I used. That's job costing. That's all you're doing. That's all it is. But doing it consistently is the key to win. So let's get to some more questions. And then, um, and uh, Matt Schmoll, I'm always here to help you as well, too. We can uh, we can have an offline discussion, nick at nickslavic.com about any of that stuff. And I, we can make it easy for you, too. Jamie Reed, Angie Moore, Anthony. Good morning, Nick. Booked back up again. How quickly things can change. Yes, Matt, I hear it. Dude, we were just sitting, uh, having lunch, uh, Anthony and his wife talking uh, in St. Louis about the crazy ups and downs of this year and the things that were changed. And God, I, man. Such thoughtful people. Love you guys. Uh, Lane Miller, Mario, Larry, how's it going? Nick Shipper, Calvin Call. I was actually planning on doing spreadsheets this afternoon. Greatly appreciate this. As always, guys, um, the, the, the two biggest resources I can offer you guys are uh, if you email me, nick at nickslavic.com, I can send you a, uh, a list, uh, a sheet that I used, uh, I created over the years of all the steps I took to professionalize the business. And this last year, I actually added links to the actual Ask a Painter Live episodes where I did job costing, where I did estimating, where we did all this stuff. And I show you exactly how I do it, creating SOPs, uh, leadership, things like that. So if you email me, uh, I will uh, I will send that stuff to you. So Zach Osherman, he's going to be joining us at the summer retreat here. Uh, if I'm starting from zero, uh, Dustin, if I'm starting from zero solo, what's the best way to start collecting data? Ah, just said it. Um, get your own spreadsheet going. Uh, job cost. Uh, all you have to do that people think this is harder than it should be, um, track how many gallons of paint you use, what paint it is and what the cost is and track all your hours. And that'll give you a baseline for all those jobs. But then you have to compare it to another benchmark. If you're solo, the only problem becomes you don't, you don't usually pay yourself a W2 wage. So I've been assigning myself a 30 to $35 an hour somewhere in there uh, as a very highly skilled painter that you would employ. You just have to think like if I wasn't there doing that, what would I have to pay another painter like that? And I don't know. I mean, for somebody like me, you could probably uh, probably get upwards towards 40 on the open market. But most paint companies pay between 30 and 35 for a highly skilled uh, painter, give or take. That's about a 60 to $70,000 compensation plan a year, give or take. So that's the number I put in here. So, all right, Matt Schmoll, no problem. Joe, how's it going? Uh, Jamie, good morning. Steve Burnett, Luke Ormond. Good morning, Mike Danahy. How's it going? Ah, Elliot Lund. Oh, one of my favorite people in the industry. How do you track sundry use? Unsatisfying answer, I don't. There's too much of it. It takes too much time to account for. And uh, I say that because I used to account for it. And when I did that, it took, it takes way more time to track paintbrushes, patch, tape, plastic, things like that. Um, than it's than it does to actually track the real job costing the labor and the um, and the materials for every job. So what I found out when I tracked it, it's usually between one to two percent of all my revenue goes to that. So what I do is it's never really been more than that. It's never really been less than that. And it's such a small number that 
moving on. I would have to have a full-time person going around measuring the amount of tape we use, patch we use, things like that in order to get an accurate thing. And if I, if I knew that it was five or 10% of revenue, we would have a full-time person doing that, but it's so small, it doesn't matter. Hours are easy to track, gallons are easy to track. Labor is always gonna be your biggest expense every year. So we spend an enormous amount of time making sure that's accurate. Materials are gonna be next. Labor is typically 40% of all your revenue, 40 to 50%, depending on how efficient you are. Materials, we try to keep it to 15. Now here's the thing. Um, we have internal benchmarks that are a little bit less than that. So to make up for that potential one to 2% of sundries, um, I give an internal benchmark to my project managers of about 12 to 13%. Let's see if we can keep materials there because that'll always account for the sundries there. So uh, Elliot, uh, I know you're heavy in the data too. I know you're a big thinker with this stuff. Uh, if anybody comes up with a, I mean, you can certainly like have special invoices where you just do bulk orders of sundries and track those, that'd be easier. But honestly, it's one of those things where it's not that much. We really don't mess around with that stuff at all. So wish I had a more, uh, wish I had a more, uh, better answer for you there. Ah, uh, Marquinos, uh, bonjour, my friend, Joseph. Uh, I add $10 a room to account for sundries. I do that in the coatings area of the job costing spreadsheet. Love that, man. All right. So back to the data. So again, as a personal favor for me, follow Ask a Painter Live. Just share this show. Just share it. Get some more people like us. Attract the Elliots. Attract the Joes and, and everybody else here so we can have these great patio sessions and talk about the data. So, all right, back to the data. Um, this is the marketing data. This is the fun stuff. So I took a first skim at all of our marketing data uh, this last week. And what we found was we had 657 leads uh, in last quarter. Uh, oh, Zach Kenny. Good morning, Zach Kenny. He'll be coming for the retreat as well, too. Um, that means we got about 7.3 leads a day in quarter two, uh, if we, if we track it on a 90 day thing, we did 445 estimates. So that means 67.7% of all of our leads turned into estimates. So this is a number that I've actually been asking some pros around the country, uh, for this number. I think it's called slippage. When somebody, you know, we have 657 people who ask for an estimate or somehow contact us through the website for an estimate, 445 of those actually turn into an estimate of their self. Now, one thing we should know is that it's not always immediate too. Sometimes there's a big lag in when somebody does that uh, inquiries and then to estimate. So there is that, but quarter over quarter, we're, we're accurate. I believe that's called slippage, which means that there's probably 23.7%, uh, excuse me, 33.7% of our inquiries never turn into estimates. So the main two reasons, we've actually been tracking this with my coordinator, Lindsay. She's an amazing um, compiler of data too. A special mission I've given her is, I need to know when we have that slippage, why? Did they just never get back to us? Was it just kind of like, oh, they put in an inquiry and just never followed up, they weren't serious? Or were they asking for something that we didn't do? Or was the timeline uh, that we could give them an estimate not right? So I'm actually tracking that to figure out that sort of thing. Now, interestingly enough, there were 657 leads, 60 of those were kind of spam leads that came in. Like you, you know, they're obviously a Russian bot or uh, ISIS or something like that going through my website, just, you know, selling, uh, selling male enhancement pills or something, which is kind of like, a, you know, the same emails you get uh, through your um, just standard email box, they spam websites too. So uh, that will account for a little bit of that. And I need to work uh, those numbers to get that slippage a little better. But the, the two things, when you minus out the bogus leads and then you figure out why, why there was slippage, that'll let us know if our system is wrong or if people are just asking like, hey, uh, pour me a driveway or something like that. And, and uh, so that's one of those things. 
We had 202 jobs accepted. Uh, that means 30.7% of all leads turn into an actual project in my company. That's an interesting new number we started tracking. I'd love to know if you guys would ever share those things with yours too. And we produced 197 jobs. So we're kind of at this cool little equilibrium. I would always like to see more accepted, but we produced 197 jobs last quarter and we had accepted 202. And, but we also know when somebody accepts, it could be 18 months down the road. It could be five months down the road. So uh, that's just the thing. Now, here's the juicy stuff, uh, the marketing stuff. I'm going to wet the whistle here. Zach Osherman, our slippage is high because uh, we can't get to the work. <laughs> Could use 35 painters in exterior season, but not willing to lay off 15 in the winter. Yeah, man. Listen, I, I hear you. That's That was one of the biggest problems. And you have a big professional company, so do I. One of the biggest problems as a single person painter, I would book up a year or two in advance um, for exterior work. And I was actually doing a disservice to my clients. And there was a lot of slippage because of that. Like, you know, a good client would call you for a job that you know you could get. You could give them a great price, a great value. They're just waiting for you, but they don't want to wait one to two years to do it. And I don't blame them. So that's why it's important to have the workforces that we do. All right. Marketing data, the juicy stuff. Um, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. We track nine um, sort of... Um, lead sources in my company. Facebook, we received 40 leads through Facebook, which means 6.7% of all my leads came from Facebook. And I don't do a lot of Facebook advertising either. Uh, I dabble in it every once in a while just to confirm my suspicion and my data that they're not really serious leads. And that's kind of confirmed too. I can't really move the needle much on Facebook ads, give or take. Open to input by anybody who does that really successfully uh, as we create a marketing mix for winter. Flyers, here's the big boy. 258 of 657 leads came in through our paid flyers. That's 43.2%, which is kind of constant quarter over quarter, honestly. It's usually about 45%. Repeat clients, 47 leads came in from repeat clients, which is 7.9% of all of our leads came in from repeat clients. That's wonderful. That makes me so happy. Instagram, nine leads, 1.5% of all of our leads came from Instagram. Something for you guys, very interesting here. Newspaper. <laughs> 27 leads, 4.5% of all of our leads came from a local newspaper in our town here. We only have seven or 8,000 people in our town. There might be a 15,000 person, um, 10 to 15,000 person circulation. Honestly, it doesn't cost that much money. It's about a hundred bucks a week. And uh, yeah, we got 27 leads uh, this last quarter. So um, yeah, it's, it's probably not the most profitable form, but it is my hometown. It is a place I base my business and I want a presence here because it does actually touch on a demographic that's a little bit older, a little bit, a little more, um, you know, stately in, in this town here. So uh, vans, 24, 24 uh, leads came in, which is 4% of all the leads from our vans. Web search, 53 leads from web search, 8.9%. And uh, years ago I did, um, I poured a ton of money into Google AdWords and things like that. And, um, yeah, it's just the same thing got told me over and over again, which is, yeah, just invest your life savings in this. And in somewhere between one and three years, it'll pay off. And it's like, I can't do that. It's not going to happen. Uh, so I'm always looking for ways to make that better. I do actually spend, uh, some money on Google AdWords, but between me and my web guy, we always are saying like, listen, let's, let's do whatever we can. Let's spend the money on the low hanging fruit. But after that, let's not speculate. Let's just do whatever we have to, to get the bare minimum and move on there. So, uh, word of mouth, 
121 leads, 20%, 20.3% of all of our leads came in from word of mouth, which is, that makes me happier than anything else. And yard signs, 18 leads came in from our yard signs or 3% of all of our leads. So we had 18 more opportunities because of jobs because we are we had yard signs out there. Now, I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but this gets compiled through a drop-down menu on our website. When people ask for an estimate, they must fill out where they heard us. I'm not assuming everybody's gonna be 100% accurate because I scrub all of our leads. I go through our 657 leads. I see people an hour away in Edina, the fancy place in Minnesota that say they heard about us on a newspaper. That newspaper doesn't go there. Now, it's always possible that they were down here visiting a relative and they saw a newspaper, but the likelihood of that happening is very small. So I know people aren't always accurate when they do this, but overall, over 657 leads, it is pretty accurate. It's very accurate and I've tracked this quarter over quarter. So, which means we have repeat business and word of mouth accounts for over 30% of all the leads for that quarter. And um, it's, it's really interesting because it usually goes 40 to 45% uh, from our flyers, uh, 30 to 35% from word of mouth, repeat and referrals. And then the rest is that little weird mix of all the social media, the newspaper, the Google ads, the vans, the, you know, uh, the yard signs, things like that. So, yeah. That was a really interesting quarter, uh, but it tracks pretty consistently with all of our stuff. Now, the interesting thing is um, we had no spring rush, like I talked about two shows ago, which means in May, I typically taper off and, and usually even stop marketing for the summer because there's such an organic rush. There was no organic rush. And, and when I say no, I mean no organic rush. So I actually have been uh, doing lots of flyers in summer when we don't normally do it. So the cost of acquiring these leads has gone up a lot uh, in my company. And that's a number that I still have yet to compute because we're still waiting on the final uh, financials and things from the company for the quarter. But yeah, basically that's that's my marketing mix right there. That's a really interesting little look into into what we do. So uh, Ryan Koishel, another Minnesota painter. Good to see you, man. Emmanuel. Uh, Jamie Burkhardt, I hate Facebook too, but it's been our highest ROI in source by far this year. Jamie, we've been on a retreat before. You're coming again. You and me got to sit down, and I would love to know how you do that specifically because I want all my work to come from Instagram and Facebook. That would be the best. I would absolutely love that sort of thing. And uh, let's talk, Jamie. We got to share some data. Um, let's see. Hammer Temple. Hey, how you doing, man? How do you? Uh, who do you use for a flyer service? So um, I do a uh, a service a thing called EDDM, Every Door Direct Mail. It's actually a service by the United States Postal Service. You can do this yourself, but I'm not a compliance guy, right? EDDM, if you do it yourself, would means you have to print off a bunch of flyers, you have to bundle them based on mail routes, you have to print out a specific thing and deliver them to the post office at a certain time to get delivered at a certain time. That is not me. I cannot do that. I would count wrong. I would print out the wrong paper. I would do the wrong routes. But there's, a, if you search USPS, United States Postal Service, EDDM, Every Door Direct Mail, there's a very interactive website where you can actually look up and select postal routes in your area. It'll tell you how many people are there, businesses versus um, houses, um, how many people on average are in the household, the age of those people in the household, and their income as well, too. This is all through free through the U.S. Postal Service. And based on that, they can tell you how much it's going to cost to deliver that. And what you do is you actually use the Postal Service to deliver flyers and things legally for you. Now, why do this? Um, I believe, at least in my state, 
I think I know this to be true, which is you can't just print off a bunch of flyers and jam them in people's mailboxes. I think that is an illegal use of a mailbox. So um, this is a way for you to get, not, not get around it, but this is a service that the government offers you for money that you can actually use our postal carriers and they will deliver your stuff on all these routes like that. So I believe, I wanna say round numbers, we're, we're going over this. It costs about 20 cents a household to get something delivered and it usually costs 20 cents uh, per thing to get printed. Um, I actually use, because I'm not a compliance guy, I just use a big franchise uh, printing outfit um, called Minuteman Printing. I think it's a nationwide franchise, but they are an EDDM certified company where I work with the owner of that company and I just print out, I go on the website, uh, USPS website. I have a whole spreadsheet where I downloaded all the postal routes and all my little areas here and I divide it by weeks and I just, however many lines, one line on my spreadsheet is a uh, postal route. It tells you how many households we're delivering to I want to say 4,000 households a week. It costs about two grand a week, give or take, something like that. And um, yeah, I basically, I send that spreadsheet to him uh, uh, at the at Minuteman Printing. And, and again, I have not looked into this. I've not used a ton of these people. I just found one that did it and they haven't failed me, so I'm using them. So again, this is not like I've done all the research. It's like, no, I found something that works and I've kind of moved on with my life. Um, I, I have a spreadsheet where I tell him, here's here's week 29 next week. Here's the postal routes I want. Here's the cost of it. And I send that spreadsheet to him. He prints them off, delivers them every Friday to the postal service. They get delivered and I see the leads come in instantly. So it's a, it's the thing that I can prove right now that works and I can depend on. Uh, so I know if I want, you know, our goal is to get anywhere between like 38 and 50 leads every week, give or take. And if I do that, we basically have to spend two grand a week to do that in flyers, using my flyers, my method, this area, and my services, things like that. So the uh, goal for the winter is to obviously change that marketing mix and have more email marketing, um, you know, a, a bigger mix of just not so flyer heavy uh, every once in a while. So that's basically what we're going to be focusing on. Let's see what else we got here. Uh, yeah, Jamie, I look forward to sitting down with you, man. You're a big thinker, and uh, I absolutely love that. Um, okay. Oh, Zach, went away from uh, heavy Google AdWords uh, to pushing reviews and bonusing my guys for them. Lead flow has actually increased a lot. Yes, Zach, I have taken the same approach. Google AdWords is this slot machine, it feels like. Um, we know that there's a lot of the big uh, nationwide franchises, but that when you search my area, they always show up first. They have a very sophisticated system. I'm imagining they're pouring hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars into that to be that number one paid thing in everything. I I don't, maybe if we put all our chips in there and do that, you could probably do that. But even that, there's an auctioning system. It's variable. Like when you do AdWords, it's like, well, how much do you want to pay for this? And it's like, well, how about you just tell me what it's going to cost to be number one in my listing? And it's a whole bunch of stuff like that. So we've the, the one piece of data I didn't share, two pieces, is our reviews and our net promoter score. Uh, it's one thing that we actually have our coordinator own. It's a number that she owns. Um, our goal for her is to get one review a week, which is very low, but uh, she gets anywhere between one and three every week. And in the last year, we have grown from 40 to over 100 reviews, and it's 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 the way to do it. And I actually tapped everybody out there in Facebook land about six, eight months ago to say, how do we get reviews? And the unsatisfying answer was, <sighs> You got to call people and you got to email them and you got to text them and you got to hammer them one to three times to get them to get a review. And we typically ask for anywhere between five and 10 reviews a week and get one. And that's the unsatisfying truth of what it is. That's that's the ratio. Now, there's a whole bunch of friction points in there. Like we're asking for a Google 
review and some people don't even have a Google account and it is massively friction filled if you don't have a Google account to leave a Google review for somebody. So it's not as simple as what we think it is. So net promoter score. Um, this is a scientific method to figure out um, how many of your clients promote you or are detract from your business. And um, it's actually how large businesses, all real businesses do this. They track it internally so that their, their business doesn't get devalued. If they have a very low net promoter score, that means the work isn't getting done right and people are actually saying bad things about your business, sometimes rightfully so, to other people. You want net promoters. You want people to promote your business and be a raving fans of yours. And it's a one to 10 rating system. And it's not as simple as you think. There's actually a scientific sort of thing to it where you really want everybody between eight and 10. That's a rating. And then there's the middle, like the neutral people. And then there's detractors from your business. And right now, uh, we have our coordinator ask for net promoter scores. And, and to get these net promoter scores and reviews, honestly, she has to call people and just get them over the phone and just say, hey, on a one to 10, what would you rate us? And then even if they give us a 10, we say, was there anything we could have done better or what did you particularly like? And we get a lot of great feedback. Um, our our company-wide net promoter score is about 9.52, give or take, which is very high, which uh, I am a fan of. Now, what you can't do is only call the people that uh, you did great work for and were raving fans. You actually, there's a scientific process to this where I've heard 60 to 70%. You have to get 60 to 70%. I think 60% is the number. You have to get 60% of all your clients to respond to this. Otherwise, it's not accurate. If you only get, if, if we did 197 jobs and you called the five people who were just like in tears when you left, that they were just so happy and they made baked goods, that's not an accurate net promoter score. We need 60% of that, which means we need 120 people to respond to that at, at a minimum in order to even make that number accurate. And, and she's been doing really well with that. So, yeah. Bob Galensky, how's it going? Anthony Cade. <laughs> Same. Facebook is where it's at for us. I would love to sit down with you as well, too. Uh, Carlos, I've been seeing Carlos, a uh, fellow Minnesota painter. Dude, I've been seeing your ads in my feed. I love your ads, man. They're You change them all the time. Uh, you post a lot. I see them everywhere. You're doing a great job with that stuff, man, Carlos. That's a, yeah, that's it. That's a great thing, man. Uh, Bob Galensky, how often do you send them? I'm assuming you're, re you're referring to flyers. I do a weekly flyer drop of maybe, um, I can give you the exact number, but it's probably anywhere between three and 4,000 households a week. Uh, and I like to drop them on Friday. I, there's no scientific reason behind this. Uh, I just like to have them drop on Friday so that they kind of get delivered somewhere over the next, you know, they get delivered either Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, or Tuesday, giving on the, the routes and stuff there. So, Troy Cullen, good morning. Taking leads, my favorite Facebook has been great for us trying to step up our game in other areas. Troy, I'm going to demand something from you. All you people that say that Facebook and Instagram works for you, I want you to email me, nick at nickslavic.com. We need to have a discussion about this. I want to know exactly what you do because this is a code that not a lot of painters have cracked. I haven't, and I would love to hear from you. So Troy, nick at nickslavic.com. I want to know more. Paul. Oh, Paul Dibdahl. Have your kids teach you how to use the movie app or get a video editing app and make really cool short videos? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I love it. Oh, nice long post. Oh, Paul, thanks a lot, man. I love that stuff. Uh, Chris Sherris, how's it going, man? Joseph, uh, you can make a QR code that takes people right to your Google review page. Uh, screenshot the code. Yes, Joe. That works. We send people links. We have QR codes. We have all this other stuff. The problem is if they are if they don't have a Google account or if they're not signed into a Google account, if they don't use Google as much as I do, and it's one of those things they have to sign into, they forgot their password, you won't get compliance. So it's a little bit frictiony, but yes, that does. That's absolutely great. It does work. 
Uh, da, 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 da. Hammer, what's the trick with all the filters? It's so hard to figure out. Uh, I'm assuming you're talking about Facebook stuff. Again, that's true. It takes so much testing out there to do that stuff. The best thing you can do, and, and I've found too, is that um, with employment ads, you can't discriminate on age and sex and all that other stuff. But with um, painting ads and, and selling services, you absolutely can. So obviously, if you can if you can find an older demographic with a higher income, that's generally the way to go here. So, um, Bob, we get a very high percentage of Facebook work. A lot of it has to do with browsing local buy and sell trade groups and responding. Absolutely. That's one of those hidden little gems in the industry where even posting on those things, offering your services. And uh, I, I'm, I think I'm involved in about two to three hundred local happenings groups, uh, buy and sell uh um, you know, for sale groups, things like that. And I get tons of notifications when people look for painters and, uh, it's a really great thing. So, all right, everybody, it's beautiful. The sun's peeking out over the, uh, the pergola here and, uh, it's time for us to get after it, uh, as a family here. So, all right, everybody. Uh, I really, uh, I really, really, really appreciate all of you. Uh, everybody who's rocking it on Facebook, uh, especially, uh, for those of you who actually pay for ads and do, uh, ads, I want to hear from you. Uh, and I want to know how you do it. I would love to gather that data, use some of it, confirm or deny, and then share it with the rest of the group here too. So uh, obviously anonymized your stuff, but uh, I'll do my own experiments and we'll share. So, but this is why we, we capture the data that we do, folks. Um, it's not nice to have. It's not a luxury that only the fancy pants like Jason Paris and Paris Painting do. It is the entrance fee, the entrance fee for being a real business and making real decisions. So, um, yeah, that's about it. All right, one last painting question because I see Bob just posted one. What product do you use on your pergolas? I just had six requests. That is answered by what the client wants it to look like and what's on there now. This pergola is all treated wood. It's all brand new. I would wait a year. And then depending on what the client wants, we usually offer three options, which is a transparent stain, which gives you that natural cedary look. There is a semi-solid, which is a more pigmented look, but you can still see the grain. Richer colors, you can get reds and greens and blues and grays. And then there's a solid color, which uh, you know uh, is basically a paint, but it's a solid color acrylic stain that'll actually penetrate the wood and not peel so much. For our transparents, we typically use a PPG Prolux. Uh, that's our favorite, SRD. Uh, we've just, up in Minnesota, it's oil. It's the old sicken stuff, which I love. Uh, it's, it's an amazing coating. Uh, for the semi-solid, we're using Storm Cat 3, typically. And then for the solid color, we're using uh, the Sherwin-Williams, either the woodscapes or deckscapes on that stuff. So that's typically what we do here. So, yeah. All right, everybody. Uh, have a good weekend. We'll see you later. And uh, happy data collecting. Painted podcasts are produced by the Painting Contractors Association and is made possible by members and industry partners. To find out more about upcoming education opportunities or for more information about joining PCA, visit PCAPaintEd.org.